This is Going Direct, presented by Cal Fire Local 2881, a podcast created for the Cal Fire family. Hello, Didi Garcia here, communications officer with Cal Fire Local 2881. I'm sitting here today with President Tim Edwards, and he's going to be discussing some of the staffing issues we're having and continuing um, from episode one about the things that we're doing for the membership. Today, we're here with Gary Messing, the chief legal counsel and chief negotiator for Local 2881. Good afternoon. President Edwards here. We're here sitting with legal counsel Gary Messing, and Gary Messing has been with us for well over... 20 plus years. Is, would I be accurate with that or longer? Oh, it's a lot longer than that. Yes. And we get a lot of um, emails and social media posts wondering um, who is actually doing negotiations and dealing with arbitrations and, and management. And do we really have an attorney? So we're sitting here with our attorney, Gary Messing, who has over the last five years, at least, has negotiated major wins for this union in way of the academy settlements, back pay and overtime for paramedics that should have been done, and many others. And why we sit here and talk to them, there's many members out there that believe um, this is all being done by individuals with no legal experience. So we're here today to introduce you to our legal counsel and lead negotiator, Gary Messing. Take it away, Gary. Well, good afternoon. Thank you, Tim. You know, um, it's been a lot longer than 20 years. Uh, When I got out of uh, law school, I graduated from Columbia Law School in New York. I came out to work for Carol Burdick and McDonough, and Ron Yank was the uh, chief counsel for this great organization. And I came out, and uh, the very first case that I worked on, it was 1976, was an arbitration uh, for this organization. Uh, I became chief legal counsel in 2008 after Ron Yank uh, retired. Uh, And it's been uh, just a great privilege to be able to work for these folks, the most hardworking folks that I know. Uh, And um, firefighters are harder working people than most individuals in the workplace. But Cal Fire firefighters, they are they eclipse all of that. Um, in any event, uh, I have been representing public safety workers for my entire career. Uh, of course, we do uh, we do uh, things other than negotiate contracts, but I've negotiated probably well over three hundred contracts for public sector organizations. Um, That would include uh, police officer associations, local firefighter associations, and large state associations. Uh, I've I've represented uh, this organization at the bargaining table since 2008. And, um, you know, along with the great people that we've had on the bargaining teams, we've been able to get reasonably decent contracts uh, throughout. The, The last thing, of course, we did was the the uh, side letter uh, when um, the governor wanted to take 10% from everybody's paychecks. And uh, we were able to avoid a lot of the uh, negative aspects of that and uh, move forward. So right now, there are two things on the horizon, two very important things. Well, hold on a minute. Will you also, Gary, 
Um, so our membership understands not only do we have our in-house legal, Jenny Horst, and a paralegal, um, Gina Verone, thank you, um, in-house, and not only you as our lead negotiator, but also you come with a, a law firm that represents and, and also deals with PORAC, which is the largest police associations. And how many lawyers do we have at our ability to enact or use when needed, which we have multiple times in your firm? We have usually approximately 10 attorneys in Sacramento and San Francisco. And every one of them has been working for this organization because they have to, because there are so many issues and things that come up, uh, small to huge. Uh, so one person cannot possibly take care of all of the problems that, uh, that have to be dealt with for your membership. Yeah, so just letting individuals out there know um, when they hear about individuals just coming off the fire floor and representing them, that's accurate, but we also, your union money and union dues pay for the legal counsel and in-house legal counsel that we have in Sacramento. With that comes along issues that we've been dealing with over the last year, but currently the most active ones are in Riverside and San Luis Obispo. And as a lot of you may be aware, there was OSHA um, complaints filed and a complaint filed with the Labor Commission. Can you please speak on those? For us. Yes, I certainly can, because right now forced overtime is like one of the hugest issues that are uh, facing our people. Um, so you talked earlier about the settlements that we had in overtime, you know, and the overtime became a very big issue because our people work inordinate amounts of overtime as it is. I mean, not only do they work in ordinary overtime, but the regular schedules are so much longer than everybody else, everybody else's. But the, all of that overtime generated a lot of work because the um, the state was not paying properly, and so uh, we settled about twenty six million dollars worth of cases over the past couple of years against the state. The problem now has evolved. It's not about the fact that people are not getting paid. Frankly, I think people don't care that much about whether they're getting paid. They need time off. Uh, We used to have a fire season and a non-fire season. And during the fire season, our people expected to be out on the fire lines for weeks on end uh, without seeing their family, um, without getting a break or not getting a rest. Because at least there was a, a non-fire season where they were able to get some uh, periods of time off. That doesn't exist anymore. First, because fire season is year-round. And second, because it was compounded with the COVID uh, epidemic, the pandemic. Our people are suffering out there because th- they're working all the time. And it's affecting their health, both physically and mentally. So what we did is, is we were directed by the union to, to explore any paths that we could take to try and f- fix this. We filed um, uh, complaints with Cal OSHA uh, for Riverside County and for San Luis Obispo. 
claiming that um, or alleging that uh, all of the uh, added overtime shifts, thousands of overtime days, are uh, beating up our people, increasing their mental anguish, divorces, their physical health. There are people who are even becoming suicidal just over the amount of time that they have to work. And so we filed with Cal OSHA. We also wrote letters to the labor commissioner urging the the, uh, the Division of uh, Industrial Relations to take on this issue because these, these are workplace safety matters. Our people are not only injuring themselves, but they're putting their, their colleagues in danger and the public in danger because you cannot perform at 100% when you haven't slept in three or four weeks. We've had people reported to go 40 to 50 days in a row without a day off. So that is where we are right now, and we are prepared to explore every avenue that, um, that exists for us to take this issue on. And if need be, uh, we will file a lawsuit uh, if uh, Cal OSHA is unable to deal with this issue. So, Gary, there's been um, comments from the field that they have talked to other law firms, and those other law firms... Uh, imply that there are other avenues that we should have been following and that what they're doing is illegal um, to force our people on this long. And you and I have had several conversations over the years about what the state can and cannot do. And even with the current um, complaints we did, there's there's a, a chance that they're going to come back and say that they're not legit complaints based on they're being paid overtime so the state can do whatever they want. And other firms, supposedly, if our members actually call, other law firms try to imply that they can't. How do you respond to our members with that? Well, we know what the avenues are, and they're all difficult. Um, not because our people are not getting injured. They are being injured mentally and physically. But... Um, there are jurisdictional issues with the Labor Commissioner's Office in Cal OSHA, as, as you just alluded to the, um, to the recent response that I heard uh, that came out of the, um, the Riverside area. Um, it's possible that, uh, that Cal OSHA will not entertain the, these complaints. But we're going to try and take every avenue. Um, the only thing that will be left for us uh, to explore is, is litigation. S some of the problems are um, the fact that uh, it is difficult to show in, this, in these cases an injury arising in the course of the employment that, that causes the damage to the individual. It's not like somebody has a rollover and... Um, injures their arm and you can you can draw a nexus between the incident and the injury here it is much more difficult to show that nexus and so uh, we're going to have to do a lot of work to uh, show the connection between the hours worked and uh, the injuries that people are suffering yeah how do you respond to and i'll say it and i know individuals may not be happy, but how do you respond to our um, firehouse attorneys that have talked to other attorneys that say 
it's completely illegal for the state of California to work them this many hours, and it shouldn't be a fight. Why are we even having to fight it? Okay, well, that's incorrect because there's no bright line that tells uh, an employer when, they can, when they're required to stop working people. The nature of emergency service workers, the nature of that work is ex exactly that uh, you're required to work when there are emergencies, and there have been so many of them. Every, every one of these great fires have been emergencies. And the fact is, is, is that anywhere you look in the country, we've done a, a, a lot of research on this over the years, as you know. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, is that nowhere uh, is there a limit to what the employer can require of an emergency worker. It's, it's, it's very difficult to do that. The only way that you get to the point where you can do something about it is if you can prove that people are being injured by overwork. And we haven't been able to do that to this point. But I believe that um, the union is now in the process of gathering evidence that will give us the ability to go to court if we need to file an action and, and pursue this. Yeah, even after, and you've heard me say this several times, if OSHA comes back and says um, there is no physical or safety um, violation going on, um, we are claiming that because the governor has actually signed uh, legislation that says mental health is a presumptive for workers' comp, mental health is an injury. Not, maybe not so much as a broken bone type injury, but it is an injury. And that's where we have to pursue. We are saying that even to legislators at this point in time. I think what is a misconception out there about our membership is there is absolutely nothing being done or looked at to try to resolve the problem. And, and we're here today to introduce you or, or educate you uh, those issues are being addressed at the Sacramento level by our league um, labor attorney. And so when, how many, Gary, ask, answer me this. How many law firms would you estimate are in California that actually deal with labor and not law firms for management? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Probably dozens. But uh, management law firms, because they do uh, employment and labor, so they tend to represent a lot of private sector uh, companies and corporations. There are hundreds and hundreds of those. So there are much fewer, in answer to your question, there's much fewer labor law firms um, that are representing public sector employees. That's what I was getting at, public sector employees. Um, and most of those represent multiple ones because there's very few. Yeah. Um, and, and most of the time you guys, for lack of better words, are in communication or knowing what, how other ones are resolving issues to pursue and look at uh, avenues for us to pursue if, that, if they fit in our criteria, right? Yes. And in fact, for years, I have been active in the American Bar Association. And the committees that I sit on uh, are composed of uh, management and labor as well as neutrals, arbitrators and judges from all over the country. And we get together multiple times during the year. Nowadays, we have to do it remotely. 
or we would ordinarily do it in person, to talk about what's going on in the country because the issues tend to be similar. And uh, we share that information. And so I have a pretty good idea of not just what's going on in California, but what's going on in the country. If there's a new trend or a new, new type of case that you can bring uh, in support of something that could help the members. And some of the other misconception is we individuals like to compare us to Orange County or LA City. And those are city departments where we are state departments. Is there different... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Is there a different uh, criteria for certain things where this, we can't do as a state that maybe cities are able to do compared to a state agency being able to do? Well, that's a very good question because, first of all, uh, certain laws don't apply to state employees as they do to local employees. So, for example, we're fighting right now in, in court on behalf of uh, this union to establish the right to be able to, to assert Fair Labor Standard Act causes of action in court. And um, there is something called sovereign immunity that usually prevents that from happening. We have new theories and, and uh, avenues that we're trying to explore. But a city or a county, if you're suing one of those, you can go right to court and, and, and take them on. The other, <clears throat> the other thing is... Um, Dealing with a city or a county is, is a lot more straightforward and a lot simpler than dealing with the state. Because you have, um, in a c L.A. city, for example, you have a city council, you, you have the mayor, or you have uh, their lawyers or what have you, but it's all pretty centralized in terms of the uh, interests. When you're negotiating or dealing with the state, you have the governor's office, you have CalHR, which is their personnel department that has its own interests. You have the Department of Finance that has its interests. You have the legislature you have to deal with. You have CAL FIRE as a department that you have to deal with. It's, it's similar to what happens on the local level, but it's so much more complicated because there are so many more stakeholders when you're dealing with a state uh, bargaining situation. And we've talked um, several times, one of them, along the issues of the, the LE um, case you're pursuing now for this. But when it comes to suing the state of California, how easy our reality of that is, is it? How, how real is it? Because a lot of our members out there think we should be throwing lawsuits all over the place because it's that, they, they believe it's that easy. We have committed just to that LE case that you're referring to so many resources. I've had, at any given time, four or five lawyers having to work full-time. Of course, on the other side, you have um, CalHR lawyers, but plus they brought in an outside law firm as well. So uh, we have tons of lawyers on the other side uh, cranking out uh, the work. So lately, we've been involved in uh, litigating what's called summary judgment or summary adjudication of issues. What we're trying to do is we're trying to eliminate issues from going to trial. So um, uh, you kind of short-circuit that by, by litigating the legalities of them early. Um, the judge in the, this case said that he'd never seen so many briefs of the volume that they were f filed, f you know, 50-page briefs 
on each of these issues by all of the parties. Um, it's, the work is, is un unbelievably difficult and complicated, and the time that's been involved in this has been awesome. Just that one case. We have so many other cases pending for you guys. We are litigating uh, many things, in the, not only in the trial court, but we're in the Court of Appeal. We just won a Court of Appeal action on the do-overs, the double jeopardy issue that you guys have. Uh, we've had um, a victory in the Transparent California case where um, this, co this group, Transparent California, is trying to obtain information about disability retirements of peace officers and firefighters. And we joined with CalPERS, and uh, we, we've won, and we're now pending in the California Supreme Court. Uh, we think that the, the Supreme Court's going to dismiss the last appeal of Transparent California. But I, I could go on and on. We have five or six overtime cases that we're, we're pushing. Um, many, many, many cases. Yeah, but most of those are, are outside an actual um, lawsuit. And so to sue actually sue the state of California, what hurdles do you have to overcome to do that? Because you and I have discussed several times, especially when I was a state rank and file, that you just can't sue the state because we're a public employee uh, organization. We have contract that we signed and agreed to, and there are laws about suing the state of California when you're a public employee. And so just kind of explain those hurdles to actually sue the state of California. Okay, Again, another good point, because I, I just told you that we have a bunch of lawsuits that we've arrived at. And so where we can and where we need to, we, we are able to file lawsuits. But it is difficult to get there. So, for example, um, we have an MOU with the state of California. And if that MOU is violated, there's a grievance procedure. And that grievance procedure goes to arbitration. And that is the sole exclusive way of interpreting the contract. If your contract rights are violated, you can't trot off to court. That'll get tossed out immediately. So uh, that is one example. Another example is when uh, employees are retaliated against or um, for uh, their speech or uh, if there are labor issues because the state uh, unilaterally changes practices you have to go to PERB. The Public Employment Relations Board is, is the referee for uh, labor relations problems with the, between the unions and the state of California. You cannot go to court if PERB has jurisdiction. You just can't do it. Um, and there are other examples like that, but I mean, I, I think that that really goes to the point that you're, you're requesting the information about. Well, it does, and like I said, there's a... And and some of the reasons why we do these unscripted podcasts is, um, one, there's nothing in front of us, so there's no notes to go off of. I'm asking you questions that are coming um, from individuals in the field. And, and, and they believe that it's a drop of, if something happens at a drop of the dime, that we should just go to sue the state of California. And unfortunately, that, as you just explained, is not as simple as it sounds. And so when other law firms that they supposedly speak to tells them that they would, they would be suing the state of California, um, in my words, not yours or anybody else's in my words, uh, either they didn't talk to an attorney or that attorney's full of sh 
shit. And I'll say it. It's a podcast. It's mine. Um, and, and this is why this is considered direct talk um, for our members is they, they want information. This is the information. So the other question along that lines I have for you, Gary, and you brought it up, is in a in contract, when we're in a contract with the state of California and individual areas of the state want to try to do something different outside the contract, there's a process to that. Is it is it a simple process? Can it be done at a local level, or does it raise to the level of yourself, the state rank of file director, and maybe Cal HR being involved? Can you explain that briefly? Any changes that occur in wages, hours, or other terms and conditions of employment that are within the scope of bargaining, that, that means that they really... Virtually anything that has to do with what governs how you work every day is subject to notice to the union if the employer wants to change it, and the opportunity to meet and confer if it's not already something that's protected under the contract. Um, so if it's protected under the contract, the only way that they can change something at any level, that's if it's protected, is by... Um, uh, achieving agreement with uh, the union. In other words, mutual agreement has to be achieved. On the other side of the coin, if there are changes made on matters that are not within the MOU, things that happen at the local level can affect the entire state. There's no such thing as something that occurs in one place not impacting others. Because once a change is made in one place, and it's made in another place, at the, if it's made at the local level, without the union at the state level being involved, the practices developed that uh, the uh, management uh, at that unit has the right to make those changes. So it's, it's, it develops an argument of waiver, that the union is waiving its right to deal with it. So there are no changes in working conditions that should occur without... Notice to the union at the state level and negotiations if the uh, state level, um, which would normally be Darren at, the, at this point, um, Dar Darren would, uh, would implement uh, negotiations and we get to go, to go to the bargaining table. Sometimes we agree with the changes. Sometimes they're beneficial to the union. Other times they're not. But you cannot negotiate at the local level. That's, that's a state function. So with that, and, I, and, and you said it, and I'll reinforce it, is anytime changes are being made to the contract or something that could alter the contract, they are done at the, at the state level in Sacramento with our state rank and file director, our lead labor attorney, and usually someone out of CalHR representing the administration. And so... We have individuals that run around and want to know why they can't have specific um, schedules within their own little battalions or units. And, and they need to see or hear the understanding that's a bigger picture than just that. But those are the individuals that stir the pot down there and get people fired up. Um, moving off of this and moving on briefly before we start to wrap up for the day is we are entering a year of negotiations. And there are all kinds of uh, social media warriors out there that believe we don't have an attorney 
at the table and that it's just a bunch of hose pullers sitting at the table. And with that, I could tell you that here today with us, Gary Messing is our lead negotiator. He is the one actually negotiating at the table. And alongside him is the chair of the negotiating team, which is the state rank and file director. And there are three other individuals elected statewide to represent the membership and a one that is appointed. And with that, they are there as the um, technical experts to explain to you, right, Gary? Exactly. Um, so there are individuals out there that say, oh, well, we've been screwed on all our contracts over the last few years. Why don't we fight for more? And can you kind of paint a picture? Because I can say it a million times what I believe happens at the table. But can you kind of paint the picture of negotiations and dealing with the state since you have negotiated contracts, as you said, for many years? Yeah, it's, it's very, very difficult to bargain with the state. But going to your point, you have to have a team. You have to have some people who know what's going on from a legal standpoint. And you have to have the host pullers at the table because they know what's happening on the ground. Okay, They know how things really operate. Um, so we... Um, we are looking at a situation um, dealing with the state where uh, the state has something that we want, and we they don't want to give it to us, and we want to take it. And dealing with public entities, because we don't have the, uh, the ability uh, to strike, because it's illegal for public safety workers to strike, we have to try and convince the state at the table that our arguments are correct. And the problem is, is is that if they just don't want to do it, there's nothing that you can do uh, at some point to change their minds. Um, so we do have the ability, uh, however, to work politically. Uh, th this this union has a, a, a brilliant uh, lobbying firm, the probably the best in, in California. Um, and they understand how to make the argument to the, le the legislature. We make the argument at the bargaining table to the governor's office because CalHR represents the governor. And we have to make, the, make a convincing argument. Um, we have to tell them why it's in their interest to in increase pay and to reduce hours. Uh, and it's a difficult task, but we uh, have done it over the years, and I think that we've done some some very good work on on some of the contracts. I think um, many people think that the extension that just happened uh, worked better for us than any other extension that was out there for, uh, for the state. Um, so with that, Gary, on the last extension, what, what would have happened if we would have just said, no, we're not, we're not going to the table and you can't take this 10% from us, and we're, we're going to just not do anything, what, what would have happened? What would happen is, is we would have had that 10% taken from us without getting anything back in return. And um, as it was, we ended up with 7.5% being uh, a 7.5% reduction, which was less than most, most of the folks, which was balanced by 4.4%. Um, 
retiree medical uh, contributions that we didn't have to pay during that period of time. Um, it was balanced out by some other changes that were made in terms of changing the clock, for example, from a 56 to a 53-hour clock uh, and the like. So in the end, uh, in the end, we ended up doing faring quite a bit better than most other folks who are out there. So you also mentioned something else about striking. And in our contract, it, there is a no-strike clause. And, and a lot of our, our, our members think that we shouldn't have that in our contract at all and that we negotiated it into our contract, and that was a big mistake. So can you explain whether or not it should be in a contract, not in a contract, and does public employees overall have the right to strike? It, it, it doesn't matter whether it's in the contract or not. I, mean, I assume, by the way, that it was my predecessor, Ron Yank, who represented this organization for probably th over 30 years or more, who had that put into the contract at the time that it went in, probably in the 1980s, probably 1983 or four. The reality is, is that it doesn't matter if it's in the contract or not, because by law, peace officers and firefighters just don't have the, the right to strike in, in California. People whose jobs affect the uh, health and safety of the public don't have that, that right. So if in, even if it was not in the contract, we still would not have the right to strike. So I know what I call them, but this, I, I want to hear wh what your thoughts are. When you hear someone tell you they don't believe that because other public um, safety agencies go on strike, what, what, what do you say to that? I say it's very rare that that happens, and it's tumultuous. It's, it's, it's really difficult when, when you get to the point where that happens. You don't know if people are going to get rehired. You don't, you don't know what's, what, what's going to happen or how long people are going to be off work without pay. Uh, people can be punished and terminated. Uh, it's, you know, striking is, is very difficult, number one. Number two is our people don't want to strike because they're so dedicated to their jobs. They, we, these are the folks who won't come off of the fire lines because there's nobody to replace them. So you're, you're thinking about a time where there are going to be people out there t turning down the, their, their job when there are fires, where the life and property that is endangered and going on strike, I don't believe that the, the membership of this organization would support that anyway, even if it was legal. Well, I, I, I would venture to say there's a few out there that probably definitely would do that. But I, I would call more of those similar to the lines of what we did in 2017. It's not truly striking, but more of informational marches and not walking off the job. I don't know of one public agency since I've been involved in the union for the last 16 years in the state of California that has actually gone on strike, so to say, and walked off the job. Can you think of one? There have been a few, but way before you got on, on mm -hmm. the job. I, I think back in the early 70s, there were a, a couple of strikes in the Bay Area. Okay, but you have to go back that far and really, you know, scrape to find an example. Um, and I think if you look nationally, 
you're going to find the same thing. Very, very, very few examples of a strike of public safety workers. There are situations now, by the way, I mean, we have peace officers in our organization, several hundred. There are some organizations around the country where peace officers are quitting. They're walking away from their job because it is, you know, not fulfilling to be a, a peace officer any longer. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you, you do have people who are, are taking that route. And I, and I think that there are probably firefighters also in, in this organization who are so overworked that they've come to the point where it's not it's not worth it anymore to to put their life on the line in that way not 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 about the dangers of fighting a fire or rescuing somebody but just by overworking i think that we have people walking off the job but but they're quitting that's it's not a strike yeah there there we we had one recently within a week uh, a, a captain decide to Resign, and maybe even a couple in the last few weeks have decided to resign in lieu of working the hours that our members are working. Um, and, but there, I mean, we're actively pursuing trying to to lessen the hours worked. Um, so, with upcoming negotiations and, and your time as our lead negotiator, looking at the the outlay of what's going on in the state of California and the politics of state of California. Um, where, where or what do you believe? Uh, and I'll say it, a lot of our, our, a lot of our guys, we all know we're, we're behind in pay and parity and stuff like that. And, and there's a huge hill to overcome to get there. Um, and so how, how do you feel I'm trying to figure out how to answer, ask you this question without leading, because I don't want anybody to believe I'm leading you. I want them to hear it direct from your mouth. Is how do you see um, the atmosphere for negotiations this year? Uh, that's <clears throat> really interesting. It's really hard to say at this point. <clears throat> so we're going to be looking, obviously, to restore benefits that we gave up uh, in the um, side letter. So that's that's one thing. As to the rest, this pandemic has thrown everything into a whirlwind. We have, you know, very little uh, understanding as to how employers are reacting to, to this now. Now, we all know that there's a bailout coming for state and local agencies, and it could be a fair amount of money. The problem is, is, is that a lot of agencies now are looking at that as one-time money. They call it one-time money because it's not something that's being sustained by taxes or something that they can look to to ensure that they're going to be getting that money over a period of time. Given the fact that this is, in their minds, one-time money, a, lo a lot of those agencies seem to be talking about spending the money on capitalizing infrastructure and things of that sort where they can build a new firehouse um, buy buy new engines or what have you, um, in, instead of dealing with the um, the issues that we have to in terms of compensation, wages and compensation. Nonetheless, um, we have uh, substantial arguments that we are going to make at the bargaining table that this organization has got to be paid because of what you pointed out are the disparities right now in the wages and the hours that our people work. Uh, n number one and uh, number two, 
I think that uh, we we should be um, pressing the issue of comparability and uh, the other major question that is going to be impacting us is compaction. Um, I know that you're very familiar with the, the issue that we have um, because of the minimum wage pushing um, the uh, wages of our seasonals. That's not an independent event. When the wages of the seasonals are pushed up, it starts to, to create a compaction at every level all the way up the food chain. So that, that's something that uh, sets us apart from a lot of other agencies, and the state is going to have to deal with that. Yeah, so um, as it stands today, unless you and Darren have talked and something has changed, the state of California has not come to Local 2881 to start those discussions yet. Right, right, that has not happened. And we're, we've inquired to see whether they're prepared to start bargaining, and they have not been. And now I should say, it does us no good to force them to come to the table if they're not ready. I mean, you, you can think about that in terms of any negotiation. If you you want to buy a house, you, it doesn't help to go and try and negotiate with somebody if they don't want to sell it and you want to buy it. So they have to be prepared to sit down at the table. We will at some point, sunshine, which is a process where we have to put in writing the fact that we want to start bargaining and what, uh, what parts of the MOU are going to be at issue. At some point, we will do that. But we have to see where, where the state is coming from, and, and they have to be prepared to come to the table and have an idea of what they want to do. Yeah, we'll, we'll see where that goes in this, this world today of where we get at the table. Um, I know there are members that are expecting some kind of world win, and, and I'll say it, I don't know where we're going to end up but if they're expecting something huge I, I just don't see that happening even though we're going to lay everything on the table um before we wrap up gary i, I want a couple of things to mention real quick but one is a couple of years ago you received what was it a fellowship or what was it considered i was uh, named as a fellow to the national college of labor and employment lawyers yeah. and uh it's pretty rare for a union lawyer to get that appointment so I was um, actually uh, blessed at that point to have uh, several people attend there with me and you were one of the ones who saw me be inducted so I have proof that it actually <laughs> happened yeah and I was actually you're right most of those were management attorneys that were inducted into that. How many, how many by chance are there in that group of people, individuals? Well, in the enti entire United States, there are about 1,100 uh, labor and employment lawyers in that group. So to give you an idea of what that, that means, in the Sacramento area, there are approximately 1,100 lawyers that claim to be practicing labor and employment law, at least to some degree. So if you think of it in th those terms, uh, you know, I think it's, it shows that it's a pretty big honor. Yeah, exactly. And it just goes to show that um, Local 2881 has a very experienced, um, not just attorney, but firm, and, and the individuals that come with you. 
and all, at all points they are ever I think every one of your attorneys at your firm has worked and done something from local 2881. Would I be accurate in that? Absolutely yeah. accurate. And offices in San Francisco and in Sacramento. Um, with that, Gary, I want to thank you for your time. Um, I want to tell membership when they wonder what um, their union monies are going for and what the fight is. It's to have individuals like you and the legislative advocates that you mentioned, Aaron Reed and associates by our side throughout all this stuff. As we mentioned in the last podcast, we deal with 130 plus legislators and city and plus city councils and board of supervisors and special districts, which all come with their unique nuances of how you approach and deal with them legally or otherwise. Um, so I want to take your time. Thank you for your time today, Gary. I know we are soliciting questions from the membership on MOU sections that we'll have you back to give your um, position on those and how they are interpreted by us and maybe how they're misinterpreted, <laughs> misinterpreted as I say it, by management or vice versa. Um, but with that, I want to thank you for your time and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next one shortly. Well, I want to thank you for inviting me here to talk, number one and number two for allowing me and my firm to uh, represent the great people who work in this, in this organization. So thanks a lot, Tim and Didi. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for being here. You, um, you can also catch Gary. Uh, he writes an article for each of the Firefront magazines that go out three times a year. So you can also um, get the latest from him um, in our upcoming uh, edition that should be uh, actually in your house now. So that does it for this episode of Going Direct. Thanks for listening, and make sure you hit that follow button so you always know when new episodes are available. If you have any questions that you'd like President Edwards to answer in a future episode, please send us a message through our website at calfirelocal2881.org.